0: Hello, welcome to the Market Weekly podcast. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, and I'm joined this week by Julien Halfont, Head of Pensions and Corporate Solutions. Welcome, Julien, and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me today.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about institutional investment. And the challenges that they face in what is still a quite low interest rate world, uh, at the same time, a low rising interest rate world. So just to add to the challenges, we've got low rates, still negative rates in a lot of countries, uh, but with the expectation that rates are going to rise. Uh, At the same time, to the degree that we have institutional investors, pension funds, insurers investing in equities, some concerns, given how high valuations are and many markets currently at all-time highs. And it raises the question, well, what exactly to do? How do you build a portfolio uh, that's going to be resilient and at the same time generate the returns that they need? And I believe, Julien, you have a few suggestions for us. Uh, But let me start with a more basic question. How are you seeing institutional investment strategies evolving?
1: Well, the the main um, phenomenon that took place for the last 10 years, 15 years, is an exit of most institutional investors from equities, from listed equities, Uh, If you look at the UK pension funds, for example, they used to hold about 60% equities in the mid-2000s, and now they're about 20%. Uh, Insurance companies have gone from 15%, 20% to almost zero, and a lot of different contribution pension funds are changing their their profiles. One of the main reasons is that a lot of those institutions cannot stomach the volatility of um, equities, listed equities uh, with their investments.
0: Well, if if that's the case, of course, generally, we look to equities for returns. As you highlight, however, uh, there's volatility that comes along with that. From an institutional investor point of view, then, how do they meet their risk and return objectives if, as you pointed out over the years, they've been reducing their allocations to equities?
1: Some of them, like the pension funds and the insurance companies, have moved into um, traditional bonds, fixed income index links, corporate bonds, highly rated corporate bonds, sometimes even going slightly down uh, in the uh, capital structure to high yield. However, for mature pension funds, defined benefit pension funds, it's a bit late to take too much risk. So they have to stay in the high quality uh, range. And for uh, insurance companies with the risk-based capital, it's also difficult to go down the capital structure. So all those institutional investors are focused on highly rated so they have been suffering and really big pain pain uh, of was the very very low low yields even the last let's say 12 18 months of rising out we're still very low from from histor- historical standpoints
0: well you've painted quite a challenging environment here. I'm, I'm assuming you're going to have a solution for us uh, and and maybe I'll preempt your answer uh, by asking you the question. I, I think an alternative then for institutional investors uh, are private markets. So if you could tell us a little bit about the private market universe, how, how wide is it and some of the characterizations?
1: Yes, uh, exactly, Dan. Um, in fact, what most investors have done is to have supplemented the old risk-return framework with a third dimension, which is liquidity. A lot of those investors do not need to have uh, liquid assets in immediate sort of one month, two months, three months, even six months—they can wait. They have a lot of time in front, in their on their hands. So what they've done more recently is to try to find um, illiquid assets that can generate an illiquidity premium, be it a credit illiquidity premium for illiquid credit, private credit, or an equity illiquidity premium for private equity. And they've done this for, I would say, the last. 10, 15 years, they've really moved out of listed equities and into illiquid, uh, illiquid um, assets. One of the interesting things is that those asset classes have higher returns. Uh, if you look at senior, for example, the equivalent of um, uh, investment grade, you can generate roughly 2% more than the uh, listed bonds equivalents. And for equities, you can easily generate 3 to 4% more than the equity returns, but with roughly a third of the volatility. Uh, In practice, because the valuation of illiquid assets is less common, it's less frequent, once a quarter, once a month at best, you reduce the amount of beta you have with the market and by nature you have less volatile assets.
0: Now, one question uh, someone might ask if they wanted to play devil's advocate is uh, whether this uh, low volatility is more apparent than real, meaning if you only value something once a quarter, almost by definition, you're going to see less volatility. Do we also see with more frequently valued assets that the underlying volatility really is lower and it's not just a question of how frequently you measure?
1: We have long dated uh, time series with valuation of illiquid assets. I mean, some of them date back 30, 40, 50 years in some cases. And um, that low volatility has been a common feature of all illiquid asset classes. I mean, if you look at private equity, we're talking about traditional buyouts, uh, venture capital, infrastructure equity, real estate equity. You can see really fundamental, um, I would say fundamental feature is the low volatility. It's true also that a lot of the... uh, Para-equity investors, all of the class uh, uh, together tends, tend to um, select less volatile investments. So, we have to, we have to remember that there's those are single investments put into a, a fund or series of funds. And by doing this, you can really select stuff which are less risky than having exposure to a single name, equity or single name, bond manager, uh, bond, bond issuer, which by nature can be exposed to multiple projects and multiple type of, of risks.
0: That's helpful. Thanks. What are some of the other benefits then in moving from liquid to liquid asset classes? Already, you've mentioned higher returns than the comparable liquid asset uh, and low volatility. Already, a, a pretty good list of advantages, uh, but I imagine there's more.
1: Yes, in some in some ways, if you if I, if I can push a bit my. Um My structural analysis saying that there is a third uh, dimension. We can go to a fourth one. If you start from risk and return, you move to liquidity. You can move really rapidly to ESG factors and sustainability factors. In fact, because you're looking at single projects or best, a group of 15, 20, 30 projects within a single private debt fund or private equity fund, you can really start to um, see the uh, quality of the assets invested uh, change. I mean, the profile will, can embed a lot more environmental, social, or governance uh, criteria. Uh, that's why there's been a, a, I would say, sort of general tendency to invest in renewable uh, private debt, or renewable equity, because it's feasible, much better than if you're trying to buy a single-name company, which can be exposed to a lot of other things than just renewables.
0: As with any investment, there are uh, many considerations, risks, other factors, and when I think about illiquid investments, kind of naturally come to the question, what about exit risk? Uh, If you think about the time uh, that it might take to unwind an exposure, is that a a concern for investors or a drawback as far as you're concerned?
1: Well, actually, it it is. If if you need to liquidate illiquid assets in a short time period, that's going to be costly. That's going to be a problem. However... A bit of misconceptions, especially if around private debt. Most investors see private debt as something very liquid that you have to keep to hold to maturity. That's true. You don't want to liquidate a, a, an investment uh, into an infrastructure loan uh, halfway halfway through the uh, the period. But it does generate a lot of cash. If you do, if you look at say, a, a traditional infrastructure debt or commercial real estate debt, debt, you realize that there is often Higher high coupon because of higher yields, so three 2, four, five percent on a regular basis. And then um, you have to realize that many of those um, investments are also amortizing. So you can often uh, recover half your investment after three 2, four, five years. It's exactly the same for SME lending, US mid market loans, and, and, and so on and so forth. So you have, although those assets are illiquid from a valuation standpoint, they can generate a lot of cash.
0: I'm curious what the attitude of regulators is when they see institutional investors starting to target illiquid assets. Is that something they encourage or are they concerned by it?
1: Well, this is actually an interesting question, which depends on the type of investors. If you look at the risk-based insurance regulation based on capital requirements, that the insurance companies are actually encouraged to invest in illiquid assets because they're less volatile, so there's less uh, penalized from a pure capital standpoint. Uh, For pension funds, especially defined benefit who are very mature, so getting to the point where they are already cash flow negative, meaning they're paying more in uh, in pensions, in retirement benefits, than receiving in contribution. Uh, With illiquid assets, you can restructure pure cash flow matching strategies, meaning that you will I have exactly the assets you need to pay on a yearly basis, exactly the benefits you have to pay. In both cases, I would say that regulators, do, by the, the nature of regulation, that by nature of uh, the approaches that were selected, I would say a number of years ago, 20 years ago, they have really put uh, private debt and private equities in a, in a very good light for institutional investing. People have to re- remember this, essentially investors are professional investors. Those set classes are therefore complex asset classes that are dealt with professional environment and professional requirements. This is potentially not the same thing for uh, retail and single savings plan.
0: Well, that's very encouraging. I imagine it wouldn't be a good idea to be in- investing in something that the regulators weren't happy with. Well, uh, let's recap a bit what we've learned from Julian today. Uh, Number one, there's been a long-run phenomenon of institutional investors uh, reducing the allocations to equities. Now, as an alternative then, some have moved into fixed income, corporate bonds, uh, even high yield, but that's not an option for many institutional investors. That raises the question, okay, well, what can they invest in? And private markets is at least part of the solution for them, uh, particularly as they realize that they don't need the liquidity that they're getting in publicly traded markets. And by accepting lower liquidity, they get a premium. The advantages then to these investments in more illiquid asset classes are higher returns than the listed equivalents, but at the same time, less volatility. And something that certainly is becoming more and more important now is they also can incorporate ESG factors in their investments. Well, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Julian for sharing his insights with us. Thank
1: you, Dan, it was a pleasure as usual.
0: If you'd like more information, Please reach out to your BNP Paribas asset management contact, or check out our Investors Corner blog. For listeners who have devices with Alexa, you can ask Alexa to enable Investment Insights, or search for Investment Insights on Amazon under the category Alexa Skills. Please join us next week when I'll be speaking with Arnaud Guillaume Lamy about social bonds. Until then, we hope you stay safe